This week we're going to wrap up our study of the book of Jonah, and that may seem strange because last week, at the end of chapter 3, really seems like the perfect place to end the story. Jonah has obeyed God. He's preached to these evil Ninevite people. They've repented and turned to God. God has shown them mercy in return, and we've just seen the greatest revival the world has ever seen unfold. Somewhere between 600,000 and a million people turning to the Lord in a matter of days. Kind of hard to write a better ending than that. I mean, I guess if it was a Christian movie, the only thing you could add on to that would be if the rapture happened like right after that. But that's a pretty, pretty good ending for a story. And yet that's not where the book of Jonah ends. Because the Bible is honest about the people it writes about. Even when that honesty means sharing a truth that's not very pretty. And so the Bible is going to tell us the truth about how Jonah responded to this great revival that happened in Nineveh. Let's jump in. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, but it... The it that's mentioned there is the response of the Ninevites, this great revival. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Jonah is furious that the Ninevites have repented, and he's furious at God for showing them mercy in return. You see, he was hoping the Ninevites wouldn't listen to the message God gave him. That's why he spoke it in only eight words. And he was hoping that in 40 days he'd be watching a glorious firework display as God rained down judgment from the heavens upon the city of Nineveh and wiped them off from the face of the earth. As we mentioned previously, Jonah was a patriot and the Ninevites were Assyrians, the enemies of God's people, Jonah's people, the Israelites. The response of Nineveh would have been like the Nazis of Berlin turning to the Lord in the middle of World War II. How excited do you think the Jews would have been if they heard the news that the Nazis had all turned to Yahweh and were converting to Judaism and they could look forward to bumping into them at synagogue next Sunday? Wouldn't have been that excited. The issue underneath all of this, write this down, was that Jonah put his love of country ahead of his love of God. He put his love of country ahead of his love of God. You know, fortunately here in Canada, None of us are really under the illusion that we're a Christian nation, right? I think that's accurate. None of us are horribly offended when I say that, right? We're not under that illusion. So this isn't really an issue for us, but we do have a very good example of where this is an issue, looking just slightly south at our American brothers and sisters. And, and we can see, in so many instances, the mess that can result from Christians putting their love of country ahead of their love of God, their patriotism ahead of their faith, or possibly even worse, mixing the two together as equals. You know, it was that sort of mess that resulted in the corruption of the church under the reign of Constantine when he made Christianity the state religion and fused the state with the church. The result of that was the Holy Roman Catholic Church and almost a thousand years of darkness, a thousand years when people didn't even have access to the Bible because patriotism and faith were fused together and considered to be equal. Now imagine though how intense the conflict between faith and patriotism would be when you really were a nation built on God, when you actually were God's chosen people. 
You were a godly people and a chosen nation. That's who the Jews were. So no wonder it was so easy to mix up patriotism with faith. Even today, we believe that if you love the Lord, you'll love Israel. But the reverse is not true. Just because you love Israel doesn't mean that you love the Lord. And that's the conflict of interest that we see Jonah getting caught up in. Jonah's saying, Lord, how can you show mercy to the enemies of Israel and claim to love Israel? When you love the Lord more than you love your country, you'll gladly take whatever you perceive as a loss for your country if it means a win for the kingdom of God. But let's break that down to the individual level. If you love the kingdom of God more than you love your own kingdom, you'll gladly take what you perceive as a loss for your kingdom if it means a win for the kingdom of God. The essence of what it means to be a Christian is to live for the glory of God and His kingdom rather than the glory of yourself and your kingdom. Even if it means losing our earthly lives, if that brings Jesus glory, we're in. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3, this is on your outlines, underline these first five words, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're not conservatives or liberals, Republicans or Democrats, members of the NDP or the Green Party. We're monarchists. And we serve the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, and our allegiance is to His kingdom above all else. As a side note, I think we'd all agree that, that we've seen enough by this point in history to conclude that our hope and salvation is never going to come from politicians, right? I think we can all say we've had enough examples to stop making that mistake over and over again. Verse 2, speaking of Jonah, so he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Jonah tells God, I knew this would happen. Therefore, in other words, that's why I fled to Tarshish. For I know, and then underline this, you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. This has to be the only time in history someone has used those qualities of God as a complaint against him. You're gracious and you're merciful. You're slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Ugh. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's saying, I can't handle watching you be kind to these people, God. Just kill me now. Verse 4, then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? I don't know if you've ever had the Holy Spirit speak to you, but if you have then you know this is exactly how the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Very few words, pinpoint accuracy, not a word wasted, and a statement or question that just goes right to the heart of the issue. I can't tell you how many times I've poured out my heart to God in great detail and he answers me in one sentence, but it's just pinpoint accuracy. The Lord says to Jonah, do you believe it's right for you to be angry that I'm showing people mercy? Unsurprisingly, Jonah doesn't answer because he's sulking. Verse 5, so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. 
There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. So he pops open his lawn chair. He's got his cooler next to him. He's just sitting there watching to see what's going to happen. So, so following the greatest revival the world has ever seen, Jonah doesn't say, this is my chance to become the first megachurch pastor. Start a church and have a million people in my church. He doesn't say, we got to start some home community groups. we got to get some discipleship classes going. He doesn't do any of that. He just heads out the city and leaves them to themselves. Jonah's probably thinking, you know what? Maybe they'll repent of their repenting. Or, or maybe God will come to his senses. You know, there's, there's still hope that everyone could be killed by the Lord. Perhaps Jonah thought that because he was skeptical of their conversion. Have you ever had that response? Someone you're aware of or someone you know converts to the Lord and, and you hear great news. So-and-so gave their life to Jesus and your first response is, well, let's see if that takes. Let's, let's give it a few months. I mean, them? Like, come on, come on, come on. You know, heaven forbid that kind of response ever come out of our mouths. We might think it. Let's be real. But we can still choose what we say. And so let's make sure that our only response is, praise God. I'm going to be praying that their faith goes from strength to strength. I'm going to be believing that this is the beginning of an incredible relationship with the Lord for them. Let's make sure that we do that and we're not skeptical like Jonah. Verse 6, and, and then underline, the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. The original language tells us this was some kind of bean plant that had massive leaves. It grows 18 inches a day on its own and the leaves grow to 8 to 10 feet in length. So Jonah's sitting there, lawn chair, cooler, but he's like, it's hot. And God just makes this tree grow up behind him. Perfect little shade umbrella. Jonah's like, this is good. This is beautiful. I am made in the shade. Everything's coming together. God is finally getting his act together. Good. Verse 7. But as morning dawned the next day, underlying God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. Jonah wakes up and he notices that the plant is no longer giving him shade. It, it's dead. It's withered because this worm has been eating at it. Verse 8, and it happened when the sun arose, and then underline, that God prepared a vehement east wind, a hot easterly wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? When it was hot and uncomfortable, the Lord sent Jonah miraculous shade. And Jonah's response was gladness. Oh, you're so good, Lord. You could see that I needed some relief. And so in your kindness, you sent me some shade. You're a good God. And then when the Lord took away that gift of shade, Jonah's response was to say, just kill me now. In other words, you're making my life miserable, Lord. You're doing a bad job taking care of me. So just get it over with and kill me now. Write this down. This is huge. Jonah considered his personal comfort the gauge of God's goodness. Jonah considered his personal comfort the gauge of God's goodness. That's huge. That is a huge deal. We're going to unpack that. And yet, 
when the Lord wanted to show grace and kindness to the Ninevites, Jonah wasn't glad. His response was the opposite. So when the Lord was kind to him, the Lord was doing a good job. But when the Lord was kind to the Ninevites, the Lord was doing a bad job. By his actions and words, Jonah is claiming that he deserves the kindness of God, but the Ninevites don't. And so the Lord says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And then we read this. And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. He's not stepping back from this tantrum. He is like all in. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? The phrase 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left is just a Jewish way at that time of talking about children. The Lord was saying, Jonah, you felt like something tragic had happened. Some injustice had been done which, when the plant, which you didn't make, was killed by the worm. But you don't think that I should show mercy to the people of Nineveh who, who I made? There's 120,000 kids in there, Jonah. Don't, don't you care at all about them? What's going on in your heart? And we're never told what Jonah's reply was. My guess is because, once again, Jonah probably didn't reply. He just stayed quiet and he kept sulking. You know that awful moment in an argument where you realize that you're wrong? There's no worse moment in an argument, is there, where you're like, I'm wrong, but I'm not ready to admit that. Well, maybe you have a point, but it's the way you said it which wasn't right. Like we go to something stupid like that. Chapter 4 is strange. This chapter is strange, but as we said, it's also honest. This is a huge principle of understanding a lot of the Bible I want to share with you. One of the things the Bible does is it records exaggerated versions of issues that you and I deal with. When I say exaggerated, I don't mean embellished or inaccurate. I mean big, large, supersized examples of issues that you and I deal with. So when you read something in the Bible and your first thought is, that doesn't apply to my life. <laughs> I'm not down here hoping God is going to wipe out everybody. Come on. It's wise to take a step back and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what does this issue look like in your life and, and in my life. Because the root issue underneath all of that is often something that you and I struggle with. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember how Jesus revealed that the heart of the issue was the real issue? You might not have ever murdered somebody, so when Jesus talks about murder, you're like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not, I'm not really having urges to kill people. But Jesus explained that Hate is the same thing because that seed of hate towards a person, when it's fully developed, leads to murder. And Jesus said, the issue is that you might not have murdered anybody, but you started in the same place as the murderer, and that's the issue. You might not have ever committed adultery, but adultery begins with lustful thoughts. And so when we look at someone like Jonah in the Bible, we should ask the question, what are the root issues at work here, and do I struggle with them in my own life? So write this down. The Bible records exaggerated examples of issues we commonly struggle with. That's why we should always examine the root of the issue and compare it with our own lives. That's why we should always examine the root of the issue and compare it with our own lives. 
That's why when we read about idols in the Old Testament, we don't go, well, I'm free and clear. I don't have any idols of Baal set up in my home that I need to chop down. We ask about the issue of idolatry, and that may be something that we deal with. We go to the root issue. So let's spend some time looking at a few of the root issues that Jonah raises for us. I shared just last week something we say often around here. God's greatest concern for you and I is that we become more like his son, Jesus. Our greatest concern for ourselves tends to naturally be our personal comfort, right? We tend to default towards the belief that the most important thing is our comfort in this life. But, write this down, God is more concerned with my character than my comfort. He's more concerned with my character than my comfort, I want you to notice something in in chapter 4. I had you underline these phrases. In verse 6, we're told that the Lord God prepared a plant. In verse 7, we're told that God prepared a worm. In verse 8, we're told that God prepared a vehement east wind. And so the first thing I want us to notice is that God prepared each of these three things. God caused them to happen. The first thing the Lord does is he provides Jonah with some comfort in the form of shade on a hot day. You know, the Lord is such a good, good father. Because the truth is, Jonah was being a sulking, pouting brat in that moment. Now, when my kids do that, I'm either like God or or I go the opposite way. You know, the opposite way is when you go, oh, you're sulking? Oh, I'll give you something to sulk about. You know, or so... So, but on my good days, I do what the Lord does. You see, the, the Lord in his grace, he decides, oh, look at him. He's throwing his little hissy fit, all worked up. There's no point trying to have a serious conversation with him. He, he couldn't even handle it right now. And so the Lord just, he just gives Jonah a hug and he says, I know, Jonah, life is hard. Have some shade. And if you're a parent, you've been there before. Your kid is so worked up about something completely ridiculous. And what you want to say is like, if you just stop being so stupid, you'd see that this really isn't that big of a deal. But you do that a few times and you realize it doesn't actually help the situation. So so then you learn to parent, just, just give him a hug and say, I know, I'm sorry. Things are rough. I'm sorry you're having a rough day. And you save the rational conversation for later when they're a little more emotionally in control. That's what the Lord is doing with Jonah. He's saying, here's some shade till you finish your sulking. Now haven't we all experienced this though? Haven't we all experienced blessings from the Lord in seasons of life when we weren't praying? In seasons of life when we weren't in the word like we should be, when we weren't regularly praising the Lord and sharing our lives with him? I know I have. And and the first mistake we make in those times that I think Jonah made here is that we generally don't respond with, wow, Lord, you're so gracious and kind to me, even when I don't deserve it. You know, because of your kindness, I'm going to change my behavior and get on board with your plan for my life. Nope. We generally respond with an attitude along the lines of, Well, of course I'm being blessed. It must be because I'm doing something right. So I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing. And we keep going with that sin. We keep going with that wrong attitude. And instead of God's kindness leading us to repentance as it should, we just assume that we deserve it. Well, of course, it's me. Why wouldn't God bless me? But God's goodness to us is never because we deserve it. 
It's all grace. He doesn't love us because of what we do. He loves us because of who we are. We're, we're his kids. And I want you to make a note of this. The blessings of God are evidence of his goodness, not ours. The blessings of God are evidence of his goodness, not ours. And it is a fatal mistake anytime we begin to assume we're being blessed because we deserve it. Because we've been good boys and girls. That's not why he loves us. He loves us because we're his kids. Now God's not going to allow that behavior to continue forever. And he's going to shift to discipline mode. But it is amazing how many times when you look back you realize, you know, when I look back, I have to be honest, the Lord started with kindness. He called me back to him in kindness. But we almost never respond to his kindness. It has to get more serious than that before we'll listen. But do you want to know what the test is? you want to know how you can tell whether or not you believe that you deserve God's blessings? Because you might be thinking, that's not me. I don't think I deserve it. But there's a very simple way to tell whether you've fallen into that belief or not. All you have to do is look at how you respond when those blessings are taken away. When you truly understand that we don't deserve God's blessings, your response is going to be, I guess the Lord is doing something different in my life now. So be it. He knows what he's doing. But when deep down you believe that you deserve God's blessings, when they're removed in an area of your life, you will act as though your rights have been violated. Because when you think you deserve the blessings of God, you think you're entitled to them. You think they're your right. He has to bless me. I'm me. And your attitude will be, how dare you, God? And you'll be angry because you think God's not holding up his end of the bargain. But what bargain would that be? Where in the Bible did the Lord promise those who follow him an easy, comfortable, earthly life? I know when you read the Gospels, you can only conclude he, he actually promised the complete opposite. One of the big issues of Jonah chapter 4, write this down, is this. Do I believe that God blesses me because I deserve it? Do I believe God blesses me because I deserve it? We're going to come back to that in just a little bit and talk about it some more. The second thing the Lord does is he has a worm eat away at the plant overnight so that the next morning when Jonah wakes up, the plant is dead, his shade, his comfort and blessing is removed. And then the Lord turns it up even more. He sends a hot wind from the east to beat down on Jonah. Why? Because the day before, the Lord could tell that what Jonah most needed was some comforting. But the next day, the Lord knew that what Jonah most needed was some character development. And so the Lord in his wisdom said, Jonah, if I give you another day of comfort, you're just going to wallow in this pathetic state of sulking. So we've got to get to work. You've had enough time to be comforted. You've had enough time to sulk. Now we've got to get to work on this heart issue of yours that doesn't care if 120,000 kids get fried. So why not comfort again? Because comfort's not the point. Becoming more like Jesus is the point. Why is becoming more like Jesus the point? Because that's what's going to benefit us the most in eternity. The more like Jesus we become in this life, 
the more we'll be trusted with in eternity. And so the Lord, who only ever does what's best for us, does everything he can to lead us to live lives that will benefit us for eternity, rather than the relative millisecond that is the length of our earthly lives. Even though we will spend much of our lives protesting the goodness of God and acting as though the best thing God could do is make us comfortable here and now. That's not the best thing he could do for us. It's not the kindest thing he could do for us. When the Lord was comforting Jonah, was the Lord being good to him? Absolutely. When the Lord was developing Jonah, was the Lord being good to him? Absolutely. Hebrews 13.8, this is on your outlines, tells us this about the Lord. You all know this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. See, the Lord is not bipolar. The Lord doesn't have mood swings. He's the same always. Now hang with me here. Therefore, based on that fact, if you believe that the Bible is true, it is impossible that God was good yesterday but is not good today. Either God is good all the time or he's not good. Because based on what the Bible says, there's no room for a God who's sometimes good. If you believe the Bible is true, there's no room for a God who's sometimes good. Which means that if you and I have decided he's good, then he's still good even when circumstances don't make us feel that way. Write this down. The God of the Bible is good all the time, not sometimes. The God of the Bible is good all the time, not sometimes. One of the most important questions you will ever answer as a Christian, one of the questions that, in my opinion, separates a mature believer from an immature believer is the question, why do you believe that God is good? If your circumstances, your situation, the specifics of your life, if those things have anything to do with your answer to that question, then you do not yet have a mature and accurate view of God. The reason that we should believe that God is good is because he chose to create us. He chose to create us solely for the purpose of blessing us in and through and with a relationship with himself. And when we sabotaged his design, he brought us back into it at the cost of the life of himself. And as we read the Bible, the character of God becomes clear. He's good. The reason we should believe God is good is because we've each experienced and witnessed his goodness personally through our salvation, and he's revealed it through his word. No matter what's going on in my life, God's love, God's word, and the power of the cross, they stay the same, just like he does. And when we understand that, we can finally graduate from our juvenile questioning of the goodness of God. If you're still questioning the goodness of God, if things happen in your life, and when they're not going well, you begin to say, I, I don't know if God is good. I used to think that. If, if that's where you're at, please know, and I, I say this with genuine love, if you're still questioning the goodness of God, it's time to grow up. 
it's time to grow up. You know better. He's shown you better. And it's time to settle that issue once and for all. And to decide that in your life, the goodness of God is not an issue that's up for question or evaluation anymore. It's a settled issue. He's good all the time. All the time. You know, when you believe that you deserve God's blessings, you'll start believing that God is not good when you're not being blessed the way you think you should. And when that happens, you'll start complaining and grumbling. And I don't know if you've noticed, but according to the Bible, God takes complaining and grumbling very, very seriously. Why? Because of what it leads to. Read the story in the book of Exodus of the people of Israel, the children of Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt. And read about their journey into the wilderness as the Lord leads them. They start grumbling and complaining almost right away. And what their grumbling and complaining causes them to do is forget the blessings and the miracles of God that had happened only days earlier. Days earlier. And that same grumbling and complaining causes them to eventually turn to false gods instead of the living God. In fact, it leads all the way to them not being able to enter into the promised land and all of them having to die in the wilderness except Caleb and Joshua over the course of 40 years before a new generation can try again and enter the promised land. All because they decided they deserved God's blessings and they started grumbling and complaining when they weren't being blessed the way they decided they should. You know, if you have, and this is profound, if you have stinky cheese stuck in your mustache, the whole world stinks. The whole world stinks. And so if you think you deserve God's blessings in your life, and that the purpose of those blessings is to make you comfortable, then you're going to be miserable when God takes you through seasons of character development. Everything's going to be bad. Everything's going to stink. Not only that, but write this down. Complaining will blind you to all the incredible blessings God is pouring out on your life. Complaining will blind you to all the incredible blessings God is pouring out on your life. All you'll see is the things that you think God should be doing that he's choosing not to. That's what happened to the children of Israel. What has God done for us lately? Has he brought us out here to die? Really? All the miraculous plagues of Egypt? The parting of the Red Sea? The killing of the entire Egyptian army? You think he did all that so that he could bring you out here to die? Really? Well, maybe. That grumbling and complaining. That belief that you deserve the blessings of God and they should look exactly like what you think they should. Man, that will poison everything in your life. It will blind you to the blessings of God. But man, when you know that God is good, when you've settled that issue in your life, when you can see his grace and goodness clearly, you know what happens? You begin to see the kindness of God towards you everywhere, all over your life. As you begin to think about things you can be thankful for, you begin to see them everywhere and you'll go through life feeling blessed because you'll be aware of the blessings of God, because you're grateful for them. You don't have an attitude of entitlement toward them. 
It all comes down to this. Have you settled the issue for good in your spirit that God is good? Always. Is that a settled issue? Or are you still trying to judge the goodness of God? Let it be a settled issue in your life. Make a note of this on your outlines. Jonah wanted the Ninevites to get what they deserved. God wanted to make sure they didn't get what they deserved. Jonah wanted the Ninevites to get what they deserved. God wanted to make sure they didn't get what they deserved. See, Jonah was more concerned about the plant that withered and died than he was about the eternal fate of the entire city of Nineveh. And that might sound ridiculous, but the truth is we need to regularly ask ourselves, how am I doing at caring about the eternal fate of those around me? What's my level of passion and concern about the lost compared to the other things in my life? How passionately do I pray for my coworkers who don't know the Lord compared to how passionate I am when Netflix doesn't work? How passionately do I ask the Lord to move in the hearts of my family members who don't know him compared to the level of passion I display over the driving habits of those I share the road with? Our passion and concerns tend to naturally drift back to those things that affect our personal comfort. Those tend to be the things we naturally become most passionate about. That's why we need to regularly ask the Lord to give us His heart for those who don't know Him. His heart for the lost. His heart that He had for the people of Nineveh. You know, our heart for the lost is often fleeting. It comes and it goes. Maybe we heard a good and convicting sermon and we're good for the next three days and then it sort of drifts away. But the Lord never changes. He never changes. That's why we need his heart for the lost. So we're going to go into a time of prayer and worship in just a minute. And one of the things you can be praying for is just asking him to give you that passion for the lost. I know I need to do that on a regular, regular basis because I don't default in that direction. Is the Lord taking some things from you in your life in order to change your perspective, do some character development? Is the Lord taking you through a hot windstorm so that he can show you the condition of your heart? Take some time this evening to, to take communion and, and just thank the Lord that he's good. And just thank him for all the different kindnesses that he has shown towards you in your life. I promise that if you'll just begin to think about them, you'll be blown away as the Holy Spirit will highlight one kindness after another that the Lord has worked in your life. If things don't feel that way right now, thank the Lord that you know He's good and let Him know that you're looking forward to the day when that will inevitably be made clear. You know, when a lot of us realize that the Lord is always good is just when we get tired of putting our foot in our mouths with God over and over and over again, accusing him of not caring, asking him where he is, only to have him inevitably come through when we most need it in our lives. And if you're paying attention, eventually you begin to realize, you know, he kind of, sort of, always comes through. He always comes through. And so maybe a perfect track record should count for something the next time I'm going through something. Maybe I should just start thanking God that I know he's going to be good and that when this is all over, it's going to end the same way it always does with me saying, God, you're good. You were with me the whole time. I didn't see it. I didn't feel it, but you were with me. He's just good 
all the time. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that you are good. Unquestionably, unfailingly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, good. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our emotions and our circumstances go up and down, but, but you never change. You're the rock that doesn't move, the firm foundation that we can build our lives and place our hope upon. And so, Jesus, may we honor the faithfulness that you have shown us by being faithful to declare your goodness, whether we're on the mountain or down in the valley. May we be consistent about declaring the fact that you are good and you are faithful. We've all seen enough to come to that conclusion. And so I pray that if there's any among us who are still wrestling with the issue of your goodness, that by your grace you would just settle it in every heart this evening. That every one of us would not walk out of here doubting your goodness. But it would be a settled issue. Because you deserve our faith. You deserve our trust. And Lord, we ask that you would give us your heart for the lost. Your passion for them. The heart you displayed for those in Nineveh who were, who were just lost. Lord, help us to care like that. Help us to pray with passion and with faithfulness and endurance. And Lord, as we take some time to reflect on your goodness, would you just flood our minds with one way after another that you have been good to us. That we would be overwhelmed as you reveal to us what we know are the infinite ways that you have shown your kindness toward us. We're so thankful to, to serve a God who loves us and who cares for us.